Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, oh, how I need you. Uh, Lord, I, um, I don't trust in my own opinion of myself. I don't trust uh, in the opinion of man. Uh, but Lord, I trust in you and you alone. And uh, Lord, would you be my uh, power? Would you uh, apply this in ways I would have never imagined uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit? Do this even now. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, our passage this week <clears throat> is from Matthew chapter 9, uh, going into chapter 10. And uh, we, we, if you've not been with us uh, much or, not, or haven't been with us lately or ever, uh, we're in a series uh, from 1 Peter. And um, uh, we're taking a break from that this week, uh, which means I can pick anything, anything from the whole Bible other than 1 Peter. And uh, it's hard. It's a big book uh, to pick something out of. Uh, but this passage has been in my heart the last several months, uh, especially in light of the conference that our church hosted in February uh, about uh, the good of the bluegrass, about what's it mean to, to, to be on this restoration project, to see God's design fulfilled in every sector of our society. And uh, so in some of these, what we call them gap Sundays, uh, will be some of these more outwardly facing uh, sermons. And that's what this uh, text is today. Let's read it together. And Jesus uh, went throughout all the cities and villages, uh, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The word of the Lord. Uh, this passage, you know, kind of being front and center uh, for me all week, uh, really kind of put me in my office. Uh, and in my office, uh, it's in the BB&T building, uh, several stories up, and um, uh, it, it, you will never find it. It's kind of creepy uh, how to get back in there. There's lots of doors, and uh, I intentionally, Justin and I intentionally like to kind of be hidden in there. Uh, we don't want drop-bys. Uh, but it is in the BB&T building. You're welcome to search. You won't find us. And, um, <laughs> but where I'm at, it, it, I, I can peer directly down into the hole. You guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, it is between upper and limestone and vine and main, the hole. Uh, for some of you, you don't know anything but the hole. Uh, the whole time you've lived in Lexington, the hole has been there. Um, but for some of us, we remember what was there ahead of time. And as I've seen this hole, it was, it, I, I saw everything tore down, then I saw them plant grass over top of it, then I saw them begin to dig the hole, and then the hole stood still. And about the time that things actually started happening in the hole is when Justin and I moved in. And so now we've been able to kind of see this construction of this uh, underground parking lot, which sounds terribly boring, but it has been fascinating uh, to watch this thing uh, be built. But once the hole was dug, the, 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 and, and, and before the concrete started being poured, there were years in there. It was stalled and then stalled some more. 
And it was like that even when we first moved in. I mean, the concrete hadn't started happening. And I, I, I noticed because I was, had a better view than from my car driving around that block. And I would look down in there and my heart would break because I love Lexington. And I love downtown. And this hole was making no contribution to our common life together. I could see the possibilities with my imagination. I could see what could happen in a block like that in the center of our uh, great city. But my eyes only saw a hole. So in some ways, I, I, I was really tore up about this. I know this sounds dramatic. Uh, and I think the reason it does sound dramatic is because we've become so used to there being a hole in the middle of our city. Listen, there is a hole in the middle of our city. And we've lost hope. We've lost hope that things could actually be different. There actually could be something there that was for the good of all of us. But as I looked out in there and I was looking at this text this week, it made me ask the question, isn't this what the whole world is like? Isn't everything brimming with possibilities? See, large swaths of land can be reforested. Fields can be cultivated for agricultural purposes. Ecosystems can be brought to fullness by introducing native species. People can be lovingly rehabilitated. Children can be lovingly led to become flourishing adults. But all of these possibilities need a couple of ingredients. One is uh, for someone's heart to break. That something actually can be different. And the second thing is that same person or these same groups of people need to actually have hope that things can be different. So someone's heart's got to break and somebody's got to have hope. So what catches your attention? What calls forth a burden in your soul? What is it that moves you? More importantly, what is it that moves Jesus? Maybe even underneath that, can Jesus even be moved in this way? This is a hard series of questions for us. And I think the reason is because Jesus, for us, tends to be a bit stoic. He's like that college professor you had that should have retired 10 years earlier. Uh, that, that's what we see about him. That he has a lot to say, that he's really smart, he really knows what he's talking about, but he's lost life. But the picture that emerges of Jesus in the gospel is of a man who's highly emotive. Remember, Jesus, he wept when his friend died. Uh, Jesus wept when he was by himself and he looked over Jerusalem and his heart broke for the people who had rejected him. Uh, Jesus, you know, Jesus got so mad when he entered in, uh, into the temple courts and he, he, he saw people turning this thing of faith into a profit-making venture and he got so angry he cracked a whip. This is Jesus. Jesus really did get this sad, and he really did get this angry. But then you have uh, Jesus, uh, who children, uh, who, who, he couldn't keep children back from him. Jesus was such a warm uh, person that children felt comfortable just coming up to him. People don't, kids don't feel comfortable coming up to Stoics. Jesus hung out with drunkards and sinners. And he began to get that reputation because that was the reputation of the people he hung out with. Well, drunkards and sinners are usually pretty fun-loving people. I think Jesus was fun-loving. 
See, Jesus really does feel things, and his heart really does break. And today's passage from Matthew is a very much a summary text of what Jesus' ministry was like. We have this section in, in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, it starts at the end of 4. You'll see chapter 4, verse 23, and chapter 9, verse 35 are pretty much the exact same verse. So everything between 4.23 and 9.35, they, they, those two verses serve as bookends. And what's in the middle of the book is, 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 is Jesus, the core of Jesus' ministry. And so what I want to do is ask, what is this ministry like? This, the sum, this summary statement at the end of chapter 9, what can we say in a, in a summary fashion about Jesus' ministry? Well, I think for in the three questions I'm going to ask is, what did Jesus' ministry look like? What, what are its characteristics? Uh, what are his values? So what does ministry look like? It's going to be verse 35. And then, then we're going to ask the question, why did Jesus do this ministry? Verse 36. So the reason, his motivation. And then lastly, uh, what's his plan? How does he pull off his ministry? This verses uh, 37, 38, and 10, chapter 1. So we gotta, we've got what, why, and how. So let's look at verse 35 first. What did his ministry look like? What are its characteristics and its values? Um, verse 35, let's, let's uh, read it together again. Um, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. So cities and villages tells us that Jesus, uh, he, he didn't see urban or rural as in competition for one another. He did a little bit of both. He wasn't afraid of the city. He wasn't afraid of the small town. And it says that he, he teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. So there's three activities that Jesus was a part of. You see that in the second part of verse 35? Teaching, proclaiming, and healing. The first two of those, teaching and proclaiming, are word ministries. See, word ministries for Jesus and for us are when we use words to address uh, the issues of the heart. And his last one, healing every disease and every affliction, is when Jesus met the physical needs of people. So Jesus dealt with the internal realities and he dealt with the physical realities. And this is what we see really in chapters 5 to 9. Now, we're, we can't read all that on time to address it, but here's, here's what chapters 5 to 9 look like. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 is the one full sermon of Jesus uh, from the four Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount. And then verses 8 and 9, and then chapters 8 and 9 are rapid fire ministry. Jesus goes from meeting one need to the next. He, he heals a paralyzed man. He heals a leper. He heals uh, Peter's mother in law from a fever. He heals the demon possessed. He raises a dead girl to life. He, he gives the blind man sight and he gives the mute their speech. So you see all these deeds that he did. You've got word, chapters 5 to 7, deed, chapters 8 and 9. And then right here in 935, we see it summarized, word and deed. See, for Jesus, he naturally moved from word ministry to deed ministry and from deed ministry to word ministry. But somehow the church, we have lost our balance in this. And there are really three, what I'm going to say, are just three unhelpful ways of relating word and deed ministry. And then I'm going to give the fourth way, which is, I think is the way of Jesus. 
So let me just talk through these together. Right? And I think you'll begin to get snapshots of your experiences with different kinds of churches of how they've done this. And none of us have done it perfectly. <laughs> Our church, Take Secret Presbyterian Church, we fall in uh, two of these uh, unhelpful ways of doing word and deed ministry. <laughs> so uh, their critique is towards us too. So let me outline these three. Uh, the, the first uh, is that we manipulate with deed ministry. This is really common among evangelicals. Um, evangelicals, we usually place a lot of emphasis on evangelism, a lot of emphasis on Bible studies, and a lot of emphasis on Christian education. So even if we have, so even it's possible that we don't even have mercy ministry as a value, it, it, but it's possible that if we do use it, we use it as a means to do word ministry. So we help meet the needs, the physical needs of people, but only so we can evangelize them. That's manipulation with mercy ministry. It's unhelpful. It's not the way of Jesus. The second way is that we neglect word ministry. So you can manipulate with mercy ministry or you can neglect word ministry. Uh, this usually happens in what are called the mainline denominations. The mainline denominations are the oldest historic uh, uh, strands of the Christian church in America. And what happens here is that what's commendable about these churches is that they really do address issues of justice. They really do meet the physical needs in their community. They really do care about social issues. And that's a critique to many evangelicals. But the critique arises when the spiritual issues are ignored because meeting physical needs is the primary concern. So you can manipulate with mercy ministry. You can neglect word ministry. And thirdly, you can keep mercy, or you can keep word and deed ministry separate. Now this is, now this is common among uh, very wealthy and very well-meaning churches. The goal of these churches is to make word and deed ministry equal. They really do want to follow the pattern of Jesus, and they really do want to have word ministry, and they really do want to have deed ministry. They do their word ministry over here with the people who are like them and they don't have any apparent physical needs. But then they do mercy ministry, they do deed ministry over here and they meet the physical needs of others in a different part of town. But what happens is that, 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 that what is unspoken, what's unidentified, and I really think the biggest reason is that it's unknown, is that it keeps them separate so the physically needy don't end up in their church. Because what happens if the deed ministry you're doing in a different part of town and those people actually end up in your walls? It gets uncomfortable and it gets awkward. But what if you did both word and deed ministry with the same people? What if you let the context dictate which kind of ministry you led with? See, word and deed ministry are meant to be interdependent equals. Let me say it again. Word and deed ministry are supposed to be interdependent equals. Think about it. Uh, um, a few years ago in eastern Kentucky, there was a, a tornado uh, ransacked several counties in eastern Kentucky. Uh, and, and imagine that when the community is ransacked by a tornado, uh, there's a tree that's laying on someone's house. See, manipulation would be, um, I'm going to remove this tree from your house if you'll let me tell you about Jesus. Now, nobody's that dense. Um, but that's really what's going on in their heart. 
uh, that's manipulation. You could do, you could neglect the word altogether and say, hey, I'm here. I'm going to remove the tree from you, but I'm not looking for an opportunity along the way to speak the good news of Jesus to you. That's neglecting the ministry of the word. And then keeping it separate would be, hey, I'm doing word ministry tomorrow over here, but today I'm doing deed ministry here with you. But to make word and deed interdependent among one another would mean that you, that you look to taking both needs seriously of the people who live in this community. See, word and deed ministries are like smoke and fire. Where one is, the other must be near. So you can have an active, successful appearing church, but miss the relationship between word and deed ministry. But if we're going to actually grow the kingdom of God in our community, both are going to have to exist. See, these were so interconnected with Jesus. Jesus saw people as whole persons. Do you? Do we as a church? Our default is not this. Our default is one of the unhealthy ways of doing, ministry, of doing word and deed ministry. But we're to repent of where we're at on that spectrum, individually and as a church. And we're to strive for this model that Jesus has set out by keeping them interdependent. That's what Jesus' ministry looked like. But why did he do what he did? But verse 36 tells us he's got this motivation, he's got a reason, he's got a cause, and it's all wrapped up in that one word there, compassion. Compassion. This is a really weird word uh, in the original language. Uh, it, it could be really translated three ways. It could be translated as heart, uh, but usually the word uh, in the New Testament for heart, that, that, that's not this word. Usually the word translated for heart is like the central control system of your life. We, uh, in, in the English-speaking language, usually use the word heart as the seat of your emotions. And that's what it means when it's used here. It means the seat of our emotions. It can also mean your bowels, your entrails, old school word here, your intestines, your belly. That's what this word compassion can mean. And it does in the New Testament. But what it's getting at is your innermost part. The deepest part of who you are, whether that's your entrails, your physical self, or your heart, the seat of your emotions. But here, this third way, it can be translated as affection, mercy, or compassion, which is really the fruit of your heart. So you get the point. This word compassion is a, is a deeply emotional word. And when Jesus looked at this crowd of people in verse 36, he had compassion for them. He was deeply moved by the needs represented in this group of people. It was burdensome for him to look at them. See, Jesus is not indifferent to your pain. He's not indifferent to your pleasure. He's not indifferent to your grief or your joy. And Jesus doesn't look at us, nor at these crowds in verse 36, with glazed over, rolled eyes, and glance at them and say, I'll help you because I can and it's my duty. Jesus is deeply moved 
and he's deeply moved for them because, verse 36, they're harassed and helpless. Um, if I were to ask you, uh, what are the five words you want people to descri- describe you as? No one would say harassed or helpless, right? You wouldn't say that. But these are the words, these are the characteristics of the people who catch Jesus' attention. In fact, there are requirements for all who desire the compassion, affection, and mercy of Jesus. And the Gospels continue to go on, and they use this not-so-favorable language to describe those who follow Jesus. Think about the Beatitudes. This is chapter 5 of Matthew. Uh, Jesus throws out these core tenets of, of, uh, of the core characteristics of what it means to be a Christian. And the very first one is to be poor in spirit. I haven't read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, but I don't think uh, being poor in spirit is one of them. Matthew chapter 11 uh, says that anyone who wants rest must be weary and heavy laden. So how's that for a list? You want to get Jesus' attention? Be harassed, helpless, poor in spirit, weary, heavy laden. We're used to a different kind of list, aren't we? Bright, motivated, attractive, achieving. Isn't this the list that we strive for? Isn't this the list of the characteristics that we, so, they, we try so hard to believe are true about ourselves? And friends, this is the gospel of grace. And Jesus in his gospel says, I've only come for those who have great need. I have not come for those. I've not come to those to help. I've not come to those who are are helping to put me on their agenda to achieve their goals. And when you hear these lists, it's either very comforting or very confronting for you. It's comforting for those who are all too aware of their need for Jesus, but it's confrontational to those who think that they're actually really special. And this is why the good news of the gospel just cannot be ignored. Perhaps the good news of the gospel has become dull to you. It still feels like, gosh, I've heard this over and over and over again. Well, maybe it's because it hasn't been uniquely applied to fresh, in fresh ways to new areas of your life. And this text today is calling us to be confronted, to be either confronted or comforted with the reality that we're harassed and we're helpless. And then verse 36 says, we're sheep. We're sheep. Now, I, I grew up in the suburbs. Uh, I, I didn't grow up on a farm. I don't, I don't know anything about sheep, really. But what the commentaries told me this week is that they're dull, stupid animals. And when Jesus calls us sheep, he's not trying to shame us by calling us as such. Rather, he's trying to highlight our pity to state of being self-led. See, it's not shameful to be a sheep, but it's shameful to be a sheep when you don't have a shepherd. Being self-led has not turned out so well for these crowds, nor has it turned out real well for us. So how are you doing managing your own life? Have you sufficiently ruined it to the, degree, to the degree that you now find yourself as harassed and helpless? 
this is hard for us as Americans because our great myth that we believe every day is that of independence. If we're independent, then you can and should lead yourself. This is just not necessary. This isn't just possible, but it's necessary for the good life. But then the gospel comes along and asks you to reckon with the fact of how miserable you've done leading your own life. And Jesus demands, not just suggests, to be your shepherd. Jesus is saying, submit to me, hand me the keys to your life. I want to show you compassion. But isn't living under Jesus' shepherding uh, better than being harassed and helpless? (laughs) Isn't it comforting to know that Jesus, these are the kinds of people that Jesus has compassion on? This is why Jesus does his ministry. We see what does he do? He meets all kinds of needs, the physical and the spiritual, word and deed. But then we see why he does it. And the reason he does it is because he's moved deeply with compassion for those who are helpless and harassed, self-led sheep. But how's he going to pull this off? Uh, Jesus gets real pot. He actually gets really optimistic here uh, in these verses. And even though the the need of, of the people is great, you get done reading verse 36 and you're like, wow. There's crowds, and they're helpless and harassed. How, what's he going to do? And then he, says, then he says that the harvest is plentiful, positive, optimistic. He doesn't say, oh, the, the harvest, there's no, nothing for me to, to bring up here in this field. But he says the harvest is plentiful. And the natural next question is this. How is the harvest going to be brought in? If it's plentiful, how is it going to be brought in? And Jesus has a few options on the table. I think he could be the ministry visionary uh, to the 12 disciples because that's where this shifts to. He's, he's looking at the crowds and all of a sudden he's having a conversation with the disciples. He could go into ministry visionary mode and sound a lot like a, a football coach. He could give this rousing speech on how they are going to bring them in. Or if you really know the disciples' character... Jesus could humiliate them and say, this job is way too tough for you bozos. I'm going to do it all myself. But Jesus uh, jukes them here. He jukes the disciples, and what he does is he calls for them to pray. I think it's an interesting move here by Jesus. Because prayer is in some ways a call to action, but in some ways it's a call to inaction. So there's no doubt that the disciples are going to be involved because they're going to pray. That's action. But it's inaction because they're going to pray for laborers to be sent into the harvest. They are not going to pray this. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send you into his harvest. (laughs) Jesus doesn't presume that they're going to be the ones to go. Why does he do this? Why does he pray that they would pray for laborers, for possibly others to be sent to the harvest. Well, I think it's right here in verse 38. Verse 38 makes it explicit in two different places that this harvest is the Lord's harvest. It says the Lord of the harvest, and then the very last of verse 38 says His harvest. So this is Jesus' field, and these are Jesus' crops, 
not the disciples. This isn't the disciples' field, and this isn't the disciples' crop. And by prayer, this just knocks them off their throne. And they're going to have to pray that someone else might be the solution to this. Jesus is calling them to slow down long enough and think, maybe God can use someone else besides me. But what else prayer does is prayer makes one open to being the answer to their prayer. You see it in verse 1 of chapter 10? <laughs> the 12 disciples, they go out into the harvest, and they pretty much form the, perform the exact same ministry that Jesus does in verse 35. That summarizes verse 35. <laughs> so they are the answer to their own prayer. But first, they're to pray. So do you see the tension that this text is calling us into? It's on several fronts, I think. On one tension is this. It's on word and deed ministry. Another is, you've got to see yourself as helpless and harassed on one hand, but also able to be used by God on the other. And I think the third tension is a, a, a call to prayer, verse 38, and a call to direct ministry in verse 1 of chapter 10. And what tensions do for us is that they call us to live in them. But oftentimes we don't live in tensions. We lean towards the side that comes naturally to us. And we cut ourselves off at the knees for this reason. Because we don't lean to the side that's unnatural to us in our weakness and see God show up in powerful ways in our life. So as a closing application, let me just go through these tensions and identify where you're shortchanging Jesus and bringing transformation in your life. First, word and deed ministry. Um, how might you need to be corrected here? Do you see ministry, mercy ministry as a way to eventually do evangelism? Do you give someone $5 in a track? Do you see mercy ministry as superior to evangelism and Bible teaching? Do you see word and deed ministry as completely separate? Where are you at in that tension? How are they going to become interdependent in your life and in the life of our church? The next tension is between being a, a, a helpless and harassed sheep, verse 36, and a sent disciple. 10 verse 1. This is a tension, isn't it? Do you tend to downplay the power that's been giving you to be sent to be an ambassador of Christ because you're so, you're so utterly aware of your helplessness and your harass, of being harassed? Or, do, do, or, or are, um, are you so focused on being sent that you forget about the fact that you actually are helpless and harassed and in need of Jesus? That you actually aren't the savior of the world, but Jesus is. And then the prayer and being sent. Uh, do you tend to say, I'll pray for the work, but I, I'm, I'm good right here. I'm good with praying, actually. Uh, I can pray for the good work that's being done, uh, but I'm going to sit right here. If that's you, maybe you need to be open to be the answer to your own prayer like the disciples were. 
But others of us, we tend to say, I'm going, where do I sign up? We're a visionaholic, is what I call them. <laughs> if that's you, uh, maybe it's time to resign yourself to a season of prayer and realize that God can use someone else besides you to meet the needs of people. So friends, Jesus has looked upon you and he's been moved in the deepest part of his being because being self-led, being harassed, and being helpless isn't working out for you. But he doesn't want to leave you in that state. He wants to shepherd you. And he wants to shepherd you and one day call you to the ministry of prayer and call you to being sent. Let's pray together. Father, would you bring uh, your kingdom uh, to our neighborhood? Would you bring uh, your kingdom uh, to downtown Lexington and the surrounding neighborhoods? Lord, we do. We, we want to know the names of those who are marginalized. We want to meet their physical needs, and we want to tell them about Jesus. Lord, we confess uh, that we have not viewed people as whole persons. We viewed people's projects. And Lord, we, we, we repent of that and we ask you to forgive us. Lord, I pray that you would uh, drill down in the deepest parts of who we are, uh, that we're harassed and helpless, that we tend towards self-leadership, so that when we do move out, we're moving out in humility. We're moving out with a sense of we need the Jesus as much as the people uh, that we're getting to know and proclaiming him to Lord, do this, do this among all of us and with our church. In Christ's name, amen.